Good to be with you. I'm Dave Mitchell, and I work here as well. And so it's great to be able to serve together with you. And uh, we encourage you to have Bibles in hand. We use this time to bring God's Word, and it's not uh, some stuff I sort of thought up in the course of the week. I read the newspaper and uh, or Reader's Digest and sort of con- concocted these things in some tweet. But uh, it's actually from God's Word. So we're going to go to First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 and 17 through 19. Allow that to be the food and we'll sort of dive into as well. Now, we're in a series called Generosity. We just completed a series called Simplify, now Generosity. And it's not because it's all about money, but it's all about God and what God says to us. And uh, sometimes generosity is uh, not always easy. I want to show you how it becomes easy. But uh, one of the most important things to understand is that whatever we have, God is a generous God. He has modeled it before we ever even thought about doing it. I want to show you one of the great stories that you may not have heard of, because I just learned about it here a couple of weeks ago, doing a little background research and study on it. There's a church in uh, Swan Quarter, North Carolina. And the name of that church is the Providence United Methodist Church. They have an interesting story behind them. Uh, back in the late 1800s, in fact, to be exact, 1876, uh, they were struggling because Swan Quarter is right near the Atlantic Ocean. And so what happens in North Carolina and a lot of those eastern coast countries or states, I should say, is when hurricane season hits, it hits communities like theirs very hard. Their church is very close to the waterline, and so they're just tired of the repairs and the hurricane and the floods that would uh, take place. So they had a plot of land on Main Street in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, that they wanted to buy. There was a fellow by the name of Mr. Sadler who owns that property. So they approached him and asked if they could purchase that property from him. And he turned them down. He says, no, I'm going to use this for some sort of development. And he's, uh, maybe it's real estate, something like that. So he declined the offer to sell it to them. So they resigned themselves to a lesser piece of property. And that must be the Lord's will. And so there they planted the church. Well, on September the 16th, 1876, a hurricane hit Swan Quarter, North Carolina. And here's a little area. You can see the waters coming flows in. So they're a coastal town. And this was a very severe hurricane on that date. And it rose to five-foot level of floods that are taking place. Well, they had planned a dedication service for their new church on that Sunday. And so with the hurricane coming in, it's obviously through their plans in a midst. And uh, they didn't know what to do, but the hurricane hit nevertheless. The five-foot waves flooded the entire town of Swan Quarter, North Carolina. And as it were, what happened is that that little church, in fact, you can see it on the back end of the brick building. That's a current building. But the little white building you see behind the brick building, that was the church that they were going to dedicate on September the 16th, 1876, until the floods came and the hurricanes hit. And what happened is with a five-foot depth of water, it lifted up their church off its moorings, and it began to float. And it floated down a street called Church Street, which is still there to this day. You can Google it. It floated down Church Street, then it took a left on Main Street and began to float down Main Street as the floods continued to, you know, cover the entire city of Swan Quarter. 
As it went down Main Street, it came to the location of Mr. Sadler's property. And it floated on top of Mr. Sadler's property. And then the church turned around so the front was facing Main Street. And then it settled on that property. Mr. Sadler was approached again by the congregation to see if he would be willing to sell it. And at this point, he said, yes. I don't know if he saw the hand of God, but in fact, if you go there, you Google it, you can see the community says, this is the, this is the town that had the hand of God on its church. And it used to be called Swan Quarter, North Carolina. I mean, it's still called that. It used to be called Swan Quarter United Methodist Church. They changed it to Providence United Methodist Church because they believed it was the providence of God that floated their church from their other site to the better site and caused Mr. Sadler to change his mind. And that church is still located at that spot that they've been since 1876. That, my friends, is the generosity of God. Sometimes God gives us an opportunity to choose to do the right thing. Sometimes he likes to force our hand. And Mr. Sadler has been a uh, person who has seen that. God is a generous God, and sometimes he gives us miraculous ways that he shows his generosity. Often it's just simply a paycheck that comes floating in, or a Social Security check, or a disability check, or an insurance check, or whatever that may be for you. But God has a way of being generous to us to provide. And so he gives us these little vignettes, these little pictures of his providential care for the people that continue to seek his will. Based upon God's generosity to this church and to us, we want to therefore be generous to him as well. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, let me read a couple of the verses here, in fact more than that. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, I invite you to have the Bibles in hand and the chair rack or your own, your phone, your iPad, whatever you have. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6, it says this, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. For if we brought food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's break that down a little bit. It's helped understand. And this morning, here is the goal. When generosity becomes easy, when does that take place? Three things you have in the outline. Three things. Number one, when I finally pursue real contentment. Number two, when I understand the signs of discontentment and avoid them. And number three, when I began to manage whatever I have, however great or small it may be, when I manage my fund, my, my stewardship of all the finances and possessions of my life, when I manage them God's way, generosity becomes easy. First, generosity becomes easy when I pursue contentment, when I pursue godly contentment. Verse 6 says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness, the word that is used there means I want to please God. I want to please God. Now let me, let me tell you a little story. It's been over 30 years ago that God blessed Joy and myself with two wonderful daughters, Jessica and Kirsty. When Jessica was uh, about to be born, 
They threw a shower, a baby shower, and we got lots of nice gifts. And I thought, this is great. Becoming a dad is just a wonderful thing because people are giving us stuff. Uh, whether they even knew us well, they were still giving us stuff. It's great. Then Jessica was born. She was born thinking she was born on Super Bowl Sunday. And so it was right in the middle of the game. So I was pretty conflicted at that moment. And so as she was born and she came into this world and we were so wonderfully blessed, it was great. And uh, then she grew and then became her first birthday. And here's what began very hard for me. On her first birthday, she expected me to give her things. I had to give her a cake. I had to give her clothes. I had to give her some toys that she could play with, appropriate for a one-year-old. little thing to roll on. And I thought, wow, this is, this is something. And then when Christmas rolled around, I had to give her more gifts then. And she was almost two at that point. I thought, this is, this is just a start. She may live for a hundred years old. And, and every year, birthdays keep rolling around, whether we want them or not. So does Christmas. And then when Kirstie was born... On her first birthday, I had to give her gifts too. And then when Christmas, I had to give her gifts on Christmas. And ever since they've been born, every single birthday, I have to give them stuff, give them money, and Christmas. So it's doubled up. And I've made a decision. I'm not going to go to their birthday parties anymore. And I'm not going to go where they have Christmas anymore. Because every time I go, all they want is my stuff, my money. And I'm tired of giving them things. That's all they want is my money. Well, now, I hope you understand. I am not serious, except in this way. Sometimes when churches like ours or pastors like me, we preach on money. People come to a church, and they might be visiting. You might be visiting today. And there may be some of us today who are thinking, Oh, look at this. I finally go to Calvary Church, and what are they doing? They're talking about money. Of course, all the church wants is my money. Now let me go back to my kids. I love to give Kirsty and Jessica gifts and money why do I not feel burdened to have to give them things on their birthday and on Christmas and other days throughout the year why do I not feel that some sort of pressure some sort of unreasonable request to have to give them things on their birthday why do I not feel this resentment that I have to give because I love them I actually even give joy my wife gifts on birthday and Christmas as well why because I love her It's not a burden. It's not a hardship. There's not a spirit of resentment that every time I go to their birthday party, they're asking me for things because I love to go, because I love to give, because I love them. The church, when I come to Calvary Church, I love to give. Why? Because I love the Lord. And before Paul begins to break down all this financial talk, of 1 Timothy 6, he says, but godliness. But godliness is a means of great gain. Why? 
Because he says, everything else I say after this means nothing. In fact, it may build a spirit of resentment if I don't begin with godliness. That is, I love the Lord. I love what he's doing. I'm excited to have an opportunity to be part of it. And I want to give to him. That's the beginning point. So if you've not reached that point where godliness, pleasing the Lord, is a priority of your life, we invite you into that. But if you have a barrier about that, then all the rest I'm going to say, you don't need to listen. You can pull out your phone, play your games if you want. I don't care. But I invite you to listen gently. Because I understand the barrier that this can create, and so I'm sensitive to that. But I simply give the illustration of my family that when you get to a place where you love your family, you love to give to them. When you get to a place where you love the Lord and His church, you love to give to them. And I invite you into that. So, Paul begins by saying, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Notice who's doing the begging. It's not Paul. It's not the pastor. It's the people. We're begging you to give more, Paul. We want to support what you are doing. Paul cites them as a beautiful illustration of a heart that loves to give. Why? Not as we had expected, but they, as I underlined it, for they first gave themselves to the Lord. You see, when you first give yourself to the Lord, when you love the Lord, you love to give because you love Him and what He's doing. And the begging is by me to give more, not by preacher boy begging to give more. So we invite us into this realm of this godliness So godliness is actually means a great gain when accompanied by the contentment. The word contentment made up of two words, auto meaning self and archaeo meaning to be sufficient. It's self-sufficient, not sort of a smug, self-satisfied way, but it's self-sufficient in a way that says all that I have I'm content with now. I need nothing more. Paul says that's the beginning. Now, how do you get to contentment? Paul cites two ways to get to contentment. Contentment comes when I learn to view things the way God views things. They're fragile and they're temporary. He says in verse 7, the next verse, For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of it. It's all temporary. Don't plan on keeping it forever because it's either going to break, be stolen, or destroyed, as we saw last week. Ecclesiastes puts it this way. There is this grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Everything is temporary. We all know it. We don't take it with us. I learned that early on when I was in fourth grade. In fourth grade, uh, way back in the dark days of that era, electricity had just been discovered. And uh, in, in those days, you'd open your cereal boxes and there would be coupons or toys that were inside there until kids started gagging on them and they were lawsuits. But back in those days, they had uh, those certificates, and you pull it out, and in this particular Cheerios box was an opportunity to get a stagecoach with four horses in the front like you see on the screen. I found this on eBay. I could have had one. Of the, I could still have it if I had it till this day. It's worth like $24. 
And so I ordered it from Cheerios, the stagecoach with the four horses in the front. It took six weeks, but it finally arrived. And it was an exciting day. I opened up that box, and inside was a stagecoach. I put the horses together on there, and what it has, a little rubber band underneath it. <laughs> That's so ancient. A little rubber band, you wind that rubber band up, and then the wheels on the stagecoach would turn, and it would look like the horses are, you know, carrying the stagecoach. Now, believe me, when you're a fourth grader back then, that was pretty big stuff. So I opened the box, and Avenel Edwards, my next-door neighbor, she came over, and so we opened it together, we put it together, and she and I were very excited. And so I wound it up for the very first time, and I let it go down the kitchen floor. And as it was going great, then Avenel was going to run to the other end to get it. And as she ran to the other end to get it, she stepped on it, and she broke it, and it never completed its course. And I was in anguish. Avenel Edwards, what's wrong with you? And uh, God bless Avenel Edwards. But I suddenly realized in fourth grade, everything I own is either going to be broken, stolen, or destroyed. And it was a good lesson to learn back then when they were cheap toys. Now it's very tough when you lose, like, say, a motorcycle or something like that. Then it's very painful. Then it's very painful. But everything that we have can be either stolen, destroyed, or lost. And so I learned early on the fragile nature of anything that I have. View it the way God does, that it's fragile, it's temporary. View it the way God does, and my needs, if I have food and covering with these, I shall be content, that Paul says. He says, that's all that I need. I don't need more. If I want more, then I'm going to run the risk, as we will see. Warren Buffett says this about trying to get more. He has what he calls the jerk doctrine. Of the billionaires I have known, money just brings out the basic traits in them. If they were jerks before they had money, they are simply jerks with a billion dollars. And sort of the selfish part of me says, well, I'd rather be a jerk with a billion than a jerk without a billion, you know. (laughs) But Paul's point is getting more doesn't make you better. It doesn't make you a better person. It just brings out more of what you already are. I love Proverbs contentment verse. This is the contentment verse of all the Bible. Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I love that sweet middle ground that God sometimes blesses us with. Feed me with the food that is my portion. I only want what you want to give to me, God. That I not be full and deny you because sometimes I get everything and I don't need God. Who is the Lord? I don't need Him. On the other hand, do not make me want and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, don't make me always lust for more things. God, get me in that sweet middle ground of contentment where I am self-sufficient and I need nothing more. I view things the way you do. I view my needs the way you do. And God, that's where I want to be. Job conquered that. Job is the richest man in the world of the days in which he lived. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And he had everything this world could provide for him, and then God took it all away. After he was taken all away, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I hope I can get to that point. That if God took it all away, 
I'd still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's contentment. That's where we want to get. When I have contentment, my generosity is easy because I don't need anything more. Secondly, my generosity is easy when I understand the signs of discontentment that that happens. Discontentment is found in verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. Many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And the way I sort of interpret that is discontentment sign is my personal and professional life is a mess from foolish and harmful desires over money. My personal and professional life is a mess because I have foolish and harmful desires over money. Now we always, you know, we love a raise, we love promotions, we love gifts. That, we're, not, we're saying that when my desire to get rich pushes me to harmful and foolish desires, then I have ruin and destruction. The word, those ruin and destruction, we get the English word apocalypse from it. It's an apocalypse for those who have this insatiable appetite that I always want more. I had a friend of ours from Lodi, and they called me over to come visit with them as a family. They had a younger family, and and so I went into their home, and we sat in their kitchen, actually around the kitchen table. And because they had trouble with their kids, they had trouble with their marriage, the life was miserable, and everything was going wrong. And I looked over the refrigerator. You know, well, most of it was in the refrigerator. We have pictures of either missionaries or kids or grandkids. We got artwork. We got those kind of things. On their refrigerator was a giant picture of a yacht. I thought, why do you have a big yacht on your refrigerator? They said, well, we have joined a... well." now might be known as a pyramid scheme where we are trying to climb to the top of the pyramid and have people underneath us and they they buy and sell and we get their gain and the pyramid company that they're part of said put on the refrigerator your goal for working in our company so their goal was to have a yacht someday they wanted to become fabulously wealthy so they could have a yacht I said that's interesting to me and these, these verses like these came to my mind. I said to them, is it possible that you have a faulty goal? Now let's look at your marriage. We talked about it. Problems. Let's look at your kids. Problems. It's a very dysfunctional, disorderly household. And yet you tell me this yacht is your goal. Isn't it possible that you have the wrong goals? that your priorities are misplaced, that perhaps God has something more significant for you to pursue. And the more we discussed it, the more we... He finally tore it down. He says, yeah, we got it all mixed up. Because those who want to get rich, it doesn't mean God doesn't bless us with riches, but those whose primary goal is to get rich, you do fall into temptation. You become ensnared by desires that are foolish and harmful. And that they lead you to ruin and destruction. And there are many marriages and many relationships that have been destroyed over wanting things and money. And God says, please, align yourself with me. I love Chesterton's quote, To be clever enough to get a great deal of money... One must be stupid enough to want it. That's not God. That's a guy. The second sign of uh, discontentment is this. My spiritual life is a failure and painful because I love money. 
Again, very familiar verse. Again, we clarify it's not money is the root of all evil, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This love of money takes the place of what I said at the very beginning, our love of God. Godliness is loving God. Much like I love my daughters and my wife, I love to give to them. And I love God, I love to give to Him. But when my love goes to money, I don't love those things as much as I love money. And that what happens is that my spiritual life becomes a failure, it becomes shallow. And that He says what happens is that you wander away. And that wonderful Greek word that I love to throw out to you is planeo for wander. Planeo. We get the word planet. I begin to evolve or revolve around the wrong thing. I'm going somewhere, but the center of my universe is no longer a love for the Lord or His work. Now I'm revolving around my love for money. And it begins to spin me in an orbit where my spiritual life is impoverished even though I try to gain great wealth from my life. We had a friend of ours that Joy and I have known since Westmont College days. That's just a long time ago. And he told me after graduating from Westmont, my goal in life is to become a millionaire. And that's back when a million dollars is a lot of money. My goal is to be a millionaire. I said, wow, that's a big audacious goal. Yep. So we got married and had kids. We still know them to this day. And lo and behold, that was his goal. But as he pursued that goal, his faith became shattered, involved in an illicit relationship in a church. He lost his wife. And he doesn't have much of a relationship with his children. And we just saw his spiritual life devolve out of an orbit of loving the wrong thing. And it's tragic. It's challenging when God brings that way. Let me tell you about United Methodist Church uh, in St. Mary's, Georgia. United Methodist Church, St. Mary's United Methodist Church. They had a fellow that was a sort of a member of their church. I don't know if he's actually a member. But his name was uh, Warren Bailey. Warren Bailey uh, was a very wealthy guy. And Warren Bailey would write a check to St. Mary's United Methodist Church every year for $100,000. That's a big check. St. Mary's entire church budget was $300,000. So Warren Bailey would cover one-third of the entire church budget, which is amazing and very dangerous because you don't know whether Warren Bailey is going to decide the church down the street is my new church. And then you suddenly lose a third of your budget. That's a very precarious foundation to build a budget on. Well, Warren Bailey never attended St. Mary's United Methodist Church. He never went there. But he loved the church, so he gave that money to them. Warren Bailey died when he was 88 years old. Here, I think it was about 2000. And when the pastor was contacted by the lawyers of this man's estate, they say, Warren Bailey has left his entire estate to you, to St. Mary's United Methodist Church. And he said, well, how much is that? He says, he's left you with $60 million. Sixty million dollars. Wow. When the pastor heard that, he had fear in his heart. He feared that his churches had become this greedy, grabby bunch of people because suddenly you get all this newfound money that's come to them. Here's what Pastor Derek McClure said. It's all unreal to me. This number doesn't have much reality. He worried over this new wealth and he says, how do we remain a Christian church? 
Suddenly when wealth comes our way in an enormous sum like this, it can eat away the very heart of everything God wants to do. But God bless this church. They took that money and they created a foundation. And you can Google St. Mary's United Methodist Church today. You can find that they have a foundation where they are receiving requests. I think it's even right now they're receiving requests for those who would like to fund a project that you would like to pursue. And out of that foundation, Warren Bailey, they would support God's work. I love what they did because they didn't lose the contentment and they understood God's principle of stewardship. Why is that? Because Warren Bailey understood what it takes to have a living will, a living trust, where all that he has lives beyond his life. Warren Bailey is gone, but his funds continue on to fund God's work. That's one of the reasons why in the bulletin we're going to put on a Saturday event for Christian Living Trust, Christian Trustmaker, so that whatever you have in your possessions, whatever you have in your bank account, whatever you have in your investments, Whatever you have, you put into this living trust and you say, I'm going to die someday. I'm not going to take it with me to heaven. But I want whatever I have to continue to impact for kingdom purposes the cause of Jesus Christ. So I invite you into that so that you manage well what you have. And it's designated according to your desires that accomplishes God's work. Warren Bailey never attended church, but his money continues to empower God's work. That's what we love. We love the power. We, we wished he came to church. I wished he was a member here at Calvary Church, for that matter. But we want people here, but we want funds used for God's kingdom purposes. Then finally, not only do I understand how generosity is easy when I know what contentment really looks like, when I avoid discontentment in my life, but thirdly, when I manage my money God's way. What does God say about how to manage our funds? Notice some of the things that he says in verses 17 through 19. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good. Be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Storing up for yourselves themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And uh, there's much there. Let me just break it down. Four simple things. Here's how God would have us manage all that we have, little or great, manage it this way. View money this way. I humbly, humbly accept it, but I know that it can easily go away. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think you're better than someone else because you have or I have more than they do. I'm not better than the guy with the grocery cart on 17th Street that's laying down in front of Union Bank. I'm not better than him. And so Paul says, don't compare with others and don't put your hope in wealth because it can fly away. Proverbs says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. There is so much about what we have that is so easily going to be lost. 
That's not my hope. My hope is in the Lord. Godliness. I love the Lord. My hope is in Him, as Paul says. When I manage my money God's way, I understand the source of my money. It all comes from God. God does it. As 1 Timothy 6.17 says, but on God. Put your hope on God. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. To enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy what God has given to us. We're not going to take away the pleasure of what we do have, and we're not going to create a guilt and a shame complex because we might have more than someone else. All I'm saying is that God has blessed me with this, and I am going to enjoy it however He directs my life. And Deuteronomy 8.18 reminds us, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to make wealth. God does that. I live under the sovereign rule of God in godliness. Very beginning verse. Godliness directs my life, and He provides for me. When I manage my money God's way, I I view money the way He does. I understand He provides money the way He does. And then I will use money the way He wants me to. Why does God bless, instruct the rich to do these things? Because He says, I want you to be good. I want you to be generous. I want you to be ready to share. What's the purpose of my money? Why does God give us any money at all? Instruct them to do good. To be rich in good deeds and works. To be generous generous and ready to share. That's the core. Why do we have what we have? These things. I love this word generous. I know it's a little, maybe a little nerdy for some of us, but the word you did am I to give well. Generous means to give well. And the word ready to share, I love this word. It may not mean much to you, but the, the Greek word that a lot of us know is koinonia. I used to name Sunday school classes koinonia because koinonia means fellowship. Ready to share is based upon the word of koinonia. It's koinonikos, which is a fellowship in which I share. Where God places me in relationships that allows me to share, to be doing good, generous, and ready to share. Let me tell you a story about that. A few weeks ago, you might remember we had a Simplify series, and one of those Sundays we would break up, and one group that broke up together, let me break up, that's not right, gather together to talk. And after one of those services, Shannon Reese in our church here met with a young college student from going to college in the New Jersey area. And uh, they prayed together and shared about her ex- college experience. And they got together in a little group, and there was another woman who was a little bit older than Shannon that was in that group as well. And they shared together in a little sharing time that we had in our service. And the college student described her college education and how she's paying for it, and she has a scholarship, and so blessed, and so wonderful, and it's a great thing. Then the woman, the other woman that was part of this group, asked the college student, does your scholarship cover all of your expenses? She said, well, no, I still have to buy my own books. And that woman, this dear saint of a woman that's here at Calvary Church, spontaneously in that little group, that became a fellowship of sharing, She said to this college student, I'm going to pay for all of your books for the entire four years of your college education. I'll cover the cost of that for you. Immediately. You see, that's what it means to be ready to share. God had blessed this woman with some businesses, she said. God has provided for her all that she ever could need. And she is blessed with the privilege to give to someone worthy of godly support. God has called us into relationships so that we can 
Do good. Be generous. Be ready to share. I pray that we are in positions, because I'm fear, I, what I fear is this, that my readiness can be taken from me because I have too many debts, because I overspent by wanting things, because I didn't manage my trust, my living trust, properly, because I allowed things to go into probate and lawyers and judges and government officials or now getting their hands on all these various ways where we are not ready to share can erode the very concepts that Paul is offering to us here. I pray that we are people like that, that instructing us to do good, to be generous, and ready to share because the results are these. I'm storing up for myself, Paul says, the treasure of a good foundation for the future. I am building a treasure chest in heaven. And when I get there, I'm going to open that vault and God's going to bless me by the eternal values that I have stored up so that I can really take hold of life, which is life indeed. Why did God provide all of us what we have? Why? What is the real life? The real life is using these things for God's work, whatever that may be for each of us. Let me show you a story of someone who's captured a portion of what this is all about and is part of our church here David Holtman we appreciate he and his wife and their fa- their leadership over our ushering crew take a look at a video of some of the ways that he is applying this you go down the bike trail you look behind me you'll see the tents and every bridge and underpass all the way to the beach you have a family veterans no showers, tattoos. Very scary, some of them. Very humble, very thankful. Just leaving a, a water and a donut feels really good. I was training for um, cycling or on uh, mountain bike racing. And so I'd be doing this at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And it's... Um, Super cold, 30, 40 degrees. I, I noticed on, under one of the bridges or, or two that there was uh, homeless that were uh, jumping around. And it dawned to me that they're just trying to stay warm. And I and I said, there, gosh, if only they had a pair of nice wool socks that I like I have right now. And so it gave me the idea to start talking about it with my my wife, my son, and my sister-in-law. We decided to make some food and and get some things for Christmas morning. We stuffed stuff in stockings. We gave them toiletries, um, gloves, beanies, socks, food, burritos. And almost every place we went to, they were very open to our welcome, welcomed us there. One of the first times when we were doing this, I won't forget this. There was a, a Latino man. He didn't understand a word of word each other, but he understood the hug and he understood that I was given to him. And I. This proves that even if there's a language barrier, love is shown. Every one of them has a, has a different story. 
And it's not just they're under here drinking, using drugs. Their story might be of a bankruptcy, a divorce, mental illness. We don't know. But what what we can do is, I want to do is show love. Well, where's my outreach? Where's my mission field going to be? And and now I'm looking back after three years. This is my mission field. And I didn't see that coming. Yeah, isn't it great, David? There is in the back a beautiful tie on. He didn't seek any kind of notoriety, didn't want people to know about it, but we drew it out of him because what a story where you have a mission field and it's different from everybody. It's different for everybody. And that's why we have this Valentine's card in the bulletin today. In case you didn't get to uh, CVS to buy your Valentine's card, you have one now free of thanks to Calvary Church. But more importantly, what we would invite you to do is you notice there's nothing on the inside. We would invite you to do something like this. Think of an individual or a group where you could do good, be generous, and ready to share. It could be something you do, an act of service, an act of kindness. It could be a gift card. It could be money. Whatever that may be. And we just want to encourage you for about the next minute or so to begin to write down and consider, God, what would you have me to do? Where, where is my mission field? And many of you already have a story. It's already underway. We get that. And we could have video your story as well. But we want to encourage us to continue down that road. And if you need to start, here you go. If you need to continue, here you go. But we invite you into that. So let's take a couple of moments, and uh, I'll pray for us in a moment. But uh, would you begin to consider who and what can you give to do good, be generous, and ready to share? We encourage you to continue to consider that and think about it and pray over it. And as we worship now and even after the service, how can God work through each of us to be the people where generosity is easy because we're content, we're avoiding discontentment, and we're managing all that we have God's way? Let me pray for us. 
Help us as we continue on to serve you, to honor you. God, some of us have been blessed in abundant ways and some of us in much smaller ways, but we know that we all are of equal worth and value in your sight and that none of us in this room are any better than any others. But for however you have blessed each of us, may we be the stewards that manage well, avoiding discontentment, pursuing your contentment of godliness, and just using all that you have given to each of us to do good, to be generous, and ready to share. Help us, Father, to live that life for you that is true life indeed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.